Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Professor of International Business at the Mirage School of Business at UC Irvine. He's co-author of the most popular textbook on international marketing in the world. And what we're going to be talking about Today is his new book, just came out a few months ago, super fascinating, and you guys, uh, the Here We Are fans, are going to be very interested in this subject matter. The book is called Spice, The Global Marketing of Psychoactive Substances. John L. Graham is joining me. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here and really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your audience. Yeah, I'm uh, so happy you're here. And I actually didn't realize, so I had a, a past guest, um, one of the, uh, a fun guest we had recently um, during, so so this, this these kind of one-on-ones are, we get very much more in-depth and then we have some live episodes once in a while too, which are a little looser. And I had a guest, Kathleen Voss, on recently, who uh, I guess had had uh, read your book and and told me uh, that I should that I should check it out and I'm really happy that I did. Um, so uh, first off, can you just talk a little bit about um, because you have how many books do you have? I, I looked. I didn't. I didn't know. It looked like you had a very long list. Once I once I looked into you a little bit. Currently, I have seven books in print. Um, four of them are on uh, international negotiations. That's my main research mm-hmm. area. And I have the textbook on international marketing. I have another book on multi-generational families. Um, and uh, the newest book is Spiced. How did you, um, why did you write the book Spiced? Can you talk just a little bit about, give us a, a brief overview? Because I'm, 
my main focus is not going to be on the first four chapters uh, today because I think it will be especially unique information for my listeners. Um, but can you give us just a brief overview and, and talk a little bit about why you wrote the book? Sure. Um, I guess it goes back to a conversation I had with Hal Kasarjan. Uh, he's was one of the most, or he is one of the most foremost consumer behavior experts in the country. Uh, he was at UCLA at the time, and I was teaching at uh, University of Southern California at the time. And I don't know how it came up. It was a casual conversation about uh, marijuana, and I suggested that if it were legalized, it would probably reduce consumption. And so that sounded kind of crazy to the folks we were talking with. And uh, so I thought I'd, uh, the idea is marijuana was and is marketed in a black market. There's no control of, over that. And uh, uh, if you were to take the control of the marketing effort and uh, the marketing of the product, then you could probably do a better job of controlling consumption. Mm. Um, anyway, that was it probably that was in the 1990s. And so I started collecting articles on these different substances in 1996. I just, when I went through the box to start writing, that was the first time I grabbed an article on marijuana. But I've, so I've been working on this book in a sense for about two decades. But you have a box full of uh, articles and whatnot on, on different drug policies and that sort of thing? I sure do. I, um, yeah, I would love to peruse this box. So well, I, thankfully, I've thrown a lot of it away. I've kept some of the key things uh, in case I get sued on any of these topics. Right, I need right. that evidence. But anyway, um, it occurred to me that also at that point in time that marijuana and alcohol were completely were treated completely different. And uh, they're actually very similar in a lot of ways. And so the laws didn't make sense. And uh, what Similar I, in a lot of ways? Similar in a lot of ways um, in their uh, effects. They're different in a lot of ways as well. Right. But uh, the law treats them uh, very differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started to look into uh, what I called psychoactive substances. And that is any substance that you imbibe that affects your brain. Uh, you use the term psychedelics. They're, uh, pretty much the definition is the same, mm-hmm. but I think the, the folklore for psychedelics is they're stronger and more directed at uh, hallucinogenic properties and things like that. Right. But you have to start with salt uh, as soon as you're discussing psychoactive substances because that affects your brain activity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of knew, uh, you know, that, that sugar and, and uh, chocolate and caffeine, which we'll also be talking about, were psychoactive, but I, I, uh, salt had slipped under my, <laughs> my yes. radar. Yes. Well, if you're an old guy like me, you got to pay attention to salt intake. Yeah, that's, that's like the number one. If, if I talk to my grandpa or basically, <laughs> yeah, I went to the doctor, got to cut back on salt. That's right. That's right. So anyway, I, I tried to be comprehensive uh, in the book. There's a lot of people that write books about uh, each of these substances, but I've tried to look across them and take some lessons from uh, how one is marketed and apply that to the other. Uh, so the, the uh, list from the table of contents, I'm not going to remember it exactly, but it's uh, basically uh, salt, sugar, uh, caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, I include a chapter on chocolate. That's kind of the fun chapter. 
Um, and then it's, uh, <laughs> they're all fun chapters. Yes. Opium, uh, marijuana, cocaine, the alchemy, that's all the new, new chemistry that's happening, uh, with, uh, psychoactive substances. And then I talk about what goes on in other countries. So my background and interests are in international marketing and other countries do things very differently. I mean, at some point, uh, we can talk a little bit about caffeine and, and particularly the, uh, uh, new uh, power drinks and ha- how they're regulated differently. Yeah, and w- and when I say I kind of wanted to focus on the first uh, the first four salt, sugar, chocolate, and coffee, just because they're um, they're a little bit novel and we haven't really covered in depth on on the podcast. That's not to say that we can't we certainly can't cover all of the other uh, subjects as well. But I just haven't. Uh, I'm also <laughs> only covering those because those were all the ones that I had time to read before <laughs> before uh-huh. the interview. Okay. So I'm also cheating a little bit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you sound like my students. Yeah, so yeah. I usually read one chapter, <laughs> not four. Um, well, my excuse is I do a lot of these podcasts and have many books to read. But anyway. That's a good excuse. I, I, I buy that. So um, some of the similarities are, are interesting across all these substances. Uh, when man first discovered them, um, they thought, and this would be uh, caffeine or uh, cocaine or heroin, um, uh, salt as well. Salt is, is a necessary ingredient of the diet, but uh, over-salting things it begins to affect your brain in bad ways. But they were first... Uh, probably used or thought to be used or marketed, if you like, one person talking to another, this is before advertising, um, as pathways to spirituality. And so salt has a whole history of being related to spirituality and culture. That was so interesting. The chapter on salt, I did not... Can you just... I mean, even just the history of it kind of uh, blew my... Because we talk a lot about evolution on this podcast uh-huh. and a lot about evolutionary psychology and biology and hunter-gatherers and that sort of... And, ah, my and the transition into uh, agriculture. And I couldn't believe that I didn't know this about uh, about salt. Um, yeah. It was fascinating. Can you share just a little bit well, of that just, history? Well, just a little bit. Um, I guess my favorite story about salt is if you go to the northeast of the United States and you look at the highway system, it looks kind of haphazard. But if you understand that animals were making paths traveling to salt licks and then people used those trails and then they built highways along those trails, you begin to realize the importance of salt. Mm. Um uh, historically, and that was really probably the first thing traded between early man. Uh, they they traded uh, salt, and that allowed people to move further away from the uh, um, the places where they uh, got salt. And so, and early on, when we started moving into the uh, into agriculture, the the livestock needed salt. Therefore, uh, therefore humans all of a sudden needed much more salt to. Care for their animals and and I I I just I guess I didn't realize how limited some of these kind of salt reserves were in our our modern history and yeah well I was just in Africa uh, with our family we took a big vacation over the holidays and we visited different camps and at one of the camps um, uh, it basically advertised herds of elephants coming through what I learned was the way they attract the elephants to go right by the camp is they put out some salt. Hmm. And so these herds of elephants come there just to get the salt. 
But salt's important for all animal life, and that's why you see these paths that uh, humans take. Um, the other interesting thing about salt, which I didn't realize, I learned a lot in doing the research for the book, is that salt is really important when it comes to uh, fighting a war. You need to start, uh, you need to figure out uh, how to feed the troops, and they need salt. And so that's part of this history of salt. Mm. Also, salt has been taxed, uh, and taxing is a really important aspect of marketing or demarketing all these substances. And so historically, it's been taxed. Uh, there have been riots about salt. Uh, it's just a, and there's been books written about salt, and I borrow from those books. But uh, that's really where it starts. That was, as I mentioned, probably the first thing that was traded among early humans. Yeah, that, that was, uh, uh, it was interesting to see all of the uh, kind of uh, religious mentions of, of salt. And, and uh, as, <laughs> we certainly don't consciously think of, of salt as a spiritual thing um, these days in our, in our modern society. But to, to hear, to see some of these expressions like the salt of the earth or whatever. Yes. Like, oh, that's interesting. And we throw, we have superstitions. We throw salt over our left shoulder right. and uh, in uh, Japan and the Shinto religion, salt is very important. So it, it really has a long history and it's important to understand that history. If you're thinking about marketing a product or trying not, or trying to demarket it. Mm. And so I try to bring that in. Plus it's just kind of, as you say, interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it is important in a practical sense too. So where, it, so let, let's skip to kind of um, where we are today. How much, so, so salt's necessary. We need X amount to uh, survive. Yeah. So, so in, in the book at the end of each chapter, I have what I call a marketing miscreant. Yeah. These are people that have done terrible things with marketing. And I'm a marketing guy. Um, I like marketing. But uh, marketing people in marketing often do horrible things uh, for the sake of profit. And so I've, it's my job to point that out. Um, and so at the end of every chapter, I have a kind of a villain, if you like. The interesting thing about the salt chapter is the villain is uh, Andrew Puzder. He was just uh, appointed by Donald Trump as uh, uh, potential Secretary of Labor. He ended up dropping out, but uh, he really so had... Trump made one mistake. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> leave the poor guy alone. <laughs> I can uh, I, I can leave Trump alone for the moment, but I can't I can't leave right, Puzder right, alone. All right, because my big problem with Puzder is Carl's Jr. has some of the saltiest hamburgers, and I I didn't know. I thought. When I again, when I started, that the potato chips is where we get all the salt. Mm -hmm. um, it's that's not true. The salt gets in the American diet mainly through sandwiches and pizzas. Mm. Um, both uh, cheese—I'm sorry—cheese, meat, and bread all have a lot of salt in them. And so, if you're going to attack the consumption of salt, the first place you look is at fast food. And Carl's Jr. Uh—that's a California version of Hardee's. That's uh, Andrew Puzder's company. And uh, they make uh, three salt bombs. A salt bomb I define as any single serving that has more than uh, the recommended amount of salt in it uh, per day by the CDC. Mm. And uh, so he's got three of those burgers. And what's particularly disturbing about his advertising practices 
is he sells to teenage boys. He's admitted that. So he's selling, so he's um, marketing to youths. Um, he uses sex. If you've seen the Paris Hilton ad or the Heidi Klum ad, he uses sex in those ads for teenage boys. It's pretty easy to get their attention with that. He also uses alcohol. So uh, he's co-branded with uh, Jim Beam and Budweiser beer. Mm. And um, uh, and so th- he makes a great marketing miscreant. This was before this labor secretary thing came up. Yeah. Um, so... So we're having, uh, I forget what some of those numbers are uh, compared to what uh, the amount of salt that we're supposed to have and the. Yeah, um, I can can tell you. I can tell you exactly. Let me just look real quick. Because I want to talk about kind of what, what sort of, what, what can be done about some of this because you offer a few. Hold on. I'm trying to find, we can do a little bit of editing. Oh, here's, here we go. Okay, so the uh, Center for Disease Control, the CDC, yep. uh, recommends uh, that you, Center for Disease Control. The Center for the Centers for Disease Control. The centers for Disease Control. The okay. CDC recommends that uh, your average American uh, consume less than twenty three hundred milligrams of salt per day. For old guys like me and uh, African Americans and other high uh, groups that uh, have a problem with high blood pressure, the recommendation is fifteen hundred milligrams. The average American consumes about thirty four hundred milligrams. Mm-hmm. Um, in these salt bonds that Carl's Jr. Uh, is putting out there, and it, Carl's Jr. isn't the only company, but uh, there uh, many of their sandwiches have more than 2,300 milligrams of salt in them. So you eat that sandwich and you've already exceeded it. And the most troublesome thing about Carl's Jr. is they're training young uh, teenage boys to eat really bad stuff. That ignores what it teaches them about uh, male-female relationships and that kind of stuff. But uh, So I have a big problem with... uh, That's why I have such a big problem with Carl's Jr. and and, uh, Mr... Uh, Puzzler. Have you ever seen the? Uh, I think it's called the Heart Attack Grill in Vegas by chance. I I have not. It's uh it's it's fun because they're like very in your face about like the whole point is is that they're like look all of these fast food companies are this is what they're doing. We're just telling you that we're actually doing this. We're telling you that we're actually giving you a thing that's going to kill you. And so they have these outrageous meals and everything, and it's it's uh, just kind of um, uh, put, putting it in your face what what all these other companies are doing. Um, well, truth and advertising. Yeah, I, truth I and like advertising, that and appreciate it. Yeah. So so when when you say something like this, um, uh, this Hardee's and Carl's Jr. So if if you're in charge of one of these companies and you're trying to get customers and you, you want to get customers by selling the most delicious, uh, affordable um, food. So what 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 can be done to limit some of the uh, some of the salt intake? Is this uh, is this does there need to be some 
regulations in place or are are we just going to are are we just gonna hope that some of these companies <laughs> see the light and start being like, you know what? Let's make people healthy. <laughs> what do you think the solution well, is? Yeah, the problem is the companies. Right. I mean, I'd like to spend a little bit of time on it a little bit later, actually. Sure, the, sure. The companies are the big problem. The yeah. companies are running the country right now. Yeah. Uh, it's supposed to be that the government serves the people. Right. And then in the Constitution, it says that uh, the government is supposed to uh, exercise or regulate commerce. And that's not the way our country's working. Right now, the companies run the government, and between the companies and the government, the people are, aren't getting a fair shake. Right. No pun intended. I'm not talking about a salt shaker. But the government is actually supposed to be um, working on behalf of the people. So who? Yes, who, thank who's, you. Who's the, who is the, uh, what's the responsibility of the company? Who, who exactly are they? Well, the company, a lot of people in, in my business school argue that uh, the only purpose of uh, the only purpose of a company is to create shareholder value, right. and that's not what the law says. Uh, it does say that uh, that's the primary fiduciary responsibility, but as soon as you word, use the word primary, then that means there's something that's secondary, right? Like maybe the care of your customers, right? Right. And we actually have a marketing ethic that says that can I, I can read it real quick sure, sure. It right here. So, um, this is, uh, from the American marketing association. It defines marketing, but embedded in it is an ethic. Okay. And, it's, and I'm reading marketing is the activity set of institutes and processes, creating, communicating, delivering, and exchanging offerings that have value for customers clients, partners, and society at large. So what that's saying, there are two things that I'd like uh, to underline. One is communicating is a big part of it, mm -hmm. but creating value for customers. So that sandwich for Carl's Jr. is actually um, not helpful. Right, because part of, part of the... Uh... Uh, there's a lot of hidden costs involved in eating that sandwich, which are, it, it might only cost you $6 to buy it. But then if that is uh, later on leading to heart surgeries or all of these yeah. unexpected costs, you're not getting the same value that you might think that you're getting out of it. I shouldn't, I shouldn't criticize Carl's Jr. too much. Uh, there's a, <laughs> they are the sponsor of this podcast. So it is. Uh, oh, perfect. <laughs> no, the, the saltiest uh, single serving I found was a hamburger. I think at the Atlanta Brave Stadium, um, it's a hamburger between two pizzas for buns, and it's way off the scale of salt content. I don't have that much of a problem with that. Like, I feel like if you're going to go to a game once in a while and indulge and like, you know, yeah. and, and be ridiculous, <laughs> like I don't have as much of a problem with that as the, the things, the stores that you have to drive by every day that are in your face like you can't drive two blocks without having this in your vision well here's here's the creepiest part of the story i don't know if you've noticed but i'm i have noticed that salt is appearing in desserts much more frequently mm. particularly in the last five years you get salted caramel um yeah. uh one of the product placements on modern family had to do with uh, salted chocolate milk and so i i think what's going on there um, I'm going to say don't quote me on it, but you can go ahead and quote me, 
is with global warming, we don't need as much salt in our cities for roads. Mm. And so the people at Cargill and Morton who sell a lot of salt, the salespeople are going, well, what are we going to do about that? (laughs) We're going to put it in dessert. We got to get it in stomachs. Yes, and um, that's the kind of thing that uh, makes me crazy. Actually, yeah, yeah. Why are all of a sudden we're seeing salt in all these products, and uh, it's advertised, and uh, it's not good for the public's health? Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, I guess I don't. Uh, I guess I don't understand. Like, I, I, um, I get very frustrated with the government, but at the end of the day, they at least. And and I think they're bought by the companies and and uh, extremely corrupt. But but at least <laughs> they they attempt. Uh, at least there's an attempt to say this is the job of this government, whether they're doing it or not, is for the people, is to represent the people, to look out for the people, for public health and safety and all of that. Whereas whereas companies. Which it seems like uh, it seems like our country kind of worships right now and is uh, like loves it when a company is successful and thinks they're going to have a successful company and and hates the idea of uh, of of I I get that uh, I get that companies can um, uh, have enough money to influence the government. I don't know how how the companies are pulling off this idea of of tricking the actual people into thinking like, yeah, don't regulate, don't regulate that that business. I I don't know if it's just people are so scared about their jobs and are just so thankful that these companies are supposedly creating jobs for them. I I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I it's, it's amazing this anti regulation movement. Uh, because would you rather have someone whose sole interest is uh, creating value for the shareholder, mm-hmm. reg- uh, making decisions about what you eat and drink, or would you rather have your government, w- whose uh, at least a purported interest, yeah. is in helping people? And uh, you know, there's there's good people at companies and bad people in government, mm-hmm. but uh, the Fundamental goals are very different right. in the two or- kinds of organizations. And, uh, yeah, so it is it, – it's disturbing. Some of the things uh, – and when we get to coffee, one of the most disturbing things, I'll get to that, uh, that a company has done internationally. Well, maybe I'll go right to it. Let's get right in. Yeah, okay. we, we, can, we can skip around. Let's, uh, let's get into coffee. So as we're talking about this, you're having a cup of my Starbucks ha- house blend. It's delicious, which, actually. Yeah, it's delicious. And so I have a half cup of this every morning. And I always, before I started work on this book, I always thought that I liked the flavor of house blend a lot. And so I got out of my way to go to Starbucks to get it. Then as I was working on the book, I uh, looked up or I found uh, the caffeine content of different caffeinated drinks, running from tea and Nescafe and, and Coca-Cola and all that kind of stuff. And what I found is Starbucks House Blend has um, a lot more caffeine in it than most coffees. So what's really going on there is the caffeine is telling my brain, remember we're talking about psychoactive substances, right. uh, hey, John, uh, you like this because it makes you a little bit high, and you like this flavor. I mean, when you think about it, or if any of you remember the first time you tasted coffee, it really tastes like crap. It's just awful. It's an awful-tasting liquid. 
until you develop this relationship and your brain begins to fool you into thinking you like the flavor because the high is better with Starbucks. It was mostly cream and sugar when I first started drinking coffee. Yeah. And, and now I and now I only have it black and then I then Americano make it a little stronger once in a while an espresso. So now my marketing miscreant for caffeine is uh the company Nestle. And this is a story about how Nestle converted the Japanese from a tea drinking country to a, a coffee drinking country primarily now. They drink more coffee than they do tea. In the 1960s, when Nestle decided they wanted to sell Nescafe in Japan, um, they did a lot of marketing research. And they found that uh, the Japanese really didn't have an opinion about coffee. They'd never tasted it. You know, so if you're going to, the marketing researcher said, if you're going to try to sell it, they're not going to buy it because they're unfamiliar with the flavor. So the marketing strategy they came up with was to sell coffee flavored candy. No caffeine, but coffee-flavored candy to Japanese kids so they'd become accustomed to the taste. That was in the 60s and I guess the 70s. I'm sorry. Now It's uh, quite an investment. Yeah. well, Some long-term thinking. It is. It really is. It's brilliant marketing. Yeah. If you uh, don't consider that they're attacking children. Right. Um, but anyway, as those kids became adults, uh, they had an appreciation for that flavor, and so they started drinking coffee, and now the Japanese drink more coffee than uh, <laughs> That is tea. amazing. That's a creepy story. But they, that is really... They're my miscreant in the caffeine chapter. Yes, John, but how do we know that you're not being paid off by a big tea to, to, <laughs> to uh, Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> oh, well, actually, you do know, because in, in the book... Um, if you read the introduction, I go into a lot of detail about my own consumption behavior. Yeah. And the reason I do that is anybody writing in this area of health, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the scientific journals, they have to disclose their financial relationship to companies um, and uh, how those companies might influence the research. So disclosure is really important. And so I, maybe I went overboard. Um, but I've tried to be completely honest about, uh, for example, I, my family owns a little bit of stock in Smuckers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I report that. Uh, but actually, that's a, a, a real important thing. Yeah, yeah. And if we get, are we going to get to tobacco? I don't know if we're going to get to tobacco. Let's talk about tobacco. Yeah, sure. Tobacco has the biggest villain in the book. I, I mean, we can skip all of Like, this, this podcast is... It's very tangential. Okay. So, so yeah, this is this is meant to be a, a, as close as it can to just you and I have uh, having a chat. Okay. So go to go to the whole uh, argument now about whether climate change is caused by humans or not, and a big part of that is um, we have real science saying yes, 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 and then there's a fringe saying no, no, no. Uh, where does NASA that... saying yes? The people who are responsible for like getting ships into and getting us to Mars and whatnot says yes. This global warming is a thing, and then there's like so a couple people saying yeah. Uh, but where does that strategy come from? Well, it comes from tobacco, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to include all these different products um, that affect our brains is because we can learn the lesson from tobacco. Tobacco is when we, where we've been really successful in fighting the company, uh, the bullshit that the companies come out with about uh, their products. 
And uh, we've really had a big impact on uh, reducing the consumption of tobacco in this country since 1960. I just quit smoking again. You did? <laughs> I quit I quit for three years, and yeah. then I went through a rough patch, and yeah. I started uh, smoking again, and then I just quit again. Yeah, and, uh, that's a good thing. I feel so much better. Cigarettes are the single dumbest thing you can do. Like, at least, like, uh, in my opinion, um, yes. just because it's just, it's near impossible to quit. At least, like, if, you, if you're drinking too much, like, you still are having some fun times here and <laughs> there. But, like, tobacco's so pointless. Other than, like, if I were to have a cigarette right now, I'd have a nice seven-minute buzz. And then after that, no, zero enjoyment and just feeding the... That's thing. right. But anyway... Uh, well, so he, here's what the the miscreant for tobacco is Jean Baudouin. He's an international marketing professor at Baruch College at the City University of New York. He's an emeritus professor, as am I. I never met the man. I've seen him on video. He's very personable. He makes an excellent expert witness mm. on behalf of the tobacco companies. And when the tobacco, I bet he's tall and handsome. I wouldn't say that, <laughs> but uh, I bet he looks good in a suit. Yeah, it looks good in a suit, but uh, he, he's very persuasive. Yeah. And uh, so he's a good expert witness. Yeah. And so if you go back to tobacco and the Surgeon General reports coming out in 1964 and the tobacco companies get together and actually collude about this, what are we going to do about this problem? Because the science is starting to come out pretty strongly. And so they hired a PR firm named Hill & Knowlton. It's now part of a huge advertising agency, but then uh, it was the biggest uh, public relations firm in the country, probably the world. And John Hill, head of that PR firm, uh, concocted this um, fake science, or I can't call it fake, alternative science. That's the perfect <laughs> word, alternative science yeah, yeah. strategy, right. where we find scientists who – don't go along with the mainstream and we publicize their work and we encourage them to write op-eds and we encourage them to get in the public uh, uh, eye. It's like when you're a struggling comedian and like you have, you have material you would like to do and you know what's funny, but then uh, you can do this, this corporate gig and get paid a ton of money yes. to, <laughs> to like steal people's jokes and do a bunch of, do like a wacky hacky shtick that you know damn well is not funny in any way <laughs> but, but but uh but people are gonna buy that product and and you call yourself a comedian so people are like well he's a comedian i guess that's legitimate well the the term that bodwin uses in defending his, uh, his own behavior is paid hack yeah he said uh his critics have, uh, including the president of the american medical association um uh have criticized him. He said, well, they're calling me a paid hack. Well, that's exactly what he's been. Right. And uh, so he was hired uh, to be an expert witness, but also to promote the idea, and this is a crazy idea, that advertising tobacco does, does not influence people to smoke. Uh, they argue that advertising tobacco influences people that want to smoke to choose Marlboro or Chesterfield or whatever the brand. But that is completely wrong Chester he knows it and he's and yeah. he testifies as an expert in writing and in person to congress on this topic yeah yeah and um you know common sense says it's wrong right but there's a, a whole body of academic literature now that uh, shows that he's wrong but uh you have to wonder how much phlegm and blood his testimony 
has created in the world from people with breathing problems and places like China because uh, advertising has a big effect on consumption. Mm-hmm. It's crystal clear. But So John Bodwin is the main villain in the book. I mean, the interesting thing about all of this to me is how kind of easy it is to do because because so many people are so compliant in it. I I I think part of it is I mean some people just don't like change. I mean if you look at uh if you look at um stopping stopping smoking in restaurants or bars or whatever. Oh my the the tyranny, you know, yeah. <laughs> and and the outrage. Uh, can you believe you'd be in a place and even as someone that um that was smoking um, still at the time, um, and and has since, and and sure, if I was in a bar that had smoking, I would smoke in it. But even as a smoker, I I hated uh, that there was smoking in bars. I mean, it's still even if you're a smoker, you don't want your whole body to be covered in a dense layer yeah. of of uh, of smoke. But but I mean, was, I remember this is just like going back to when I was a kid with seatbelts, the outrage. Yes, you know the, the seatbelts, and then uh, you know Cam- Camel Joe. I remember when you had to get rid of. Camel Joe, and it was like this is ridiculous. That what do you mean? Our our hero Camel Joe, we can't have billboards. Oh, and this is this is people saying this, not not just uh, not just corporate influence and what. And, and I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of uh, corporate influence and in, in lobbying to uh, get get pundits and whatnot on the on the news. Uh, helping to make these claims and get people worked up and and uh, be be like yeah yeah Michelle Obama stop telling my kids they gotta eat broccoli <laughs> you know you know like the outrage that people get when when people are trying to work on um, some health policies is is uh, like I I totally get it from like the the government corporation kind of both corruption and the fighting and the back and forth but but just the idea that that people themselves uh, seem to fall for it and defend it so easily. Yeah, it it, it is kind of crazy and against people's self-interest, actually. I mean, once I realize of- what's going on. I, um, I'm just, uh, uh, the, thing, the thing I like best about the Bodwin case, by the yeah. way, is, again, in doing the research, I was talking to uh, um, the folks at UC San Francisco that have compiled all the testimony from all the tobacco uh, cases in the last 20 years or so. So they've got millions of records. Um, And Bodwin is mentioned in that database uh, 6,079 times. So that's how much of an impact he's had on these cases and, uh, and uh, that's why he uh, is my villain. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it, is there any, are there any kind of, it, so throughout any of these, um, because I, I haven't, uh, yet read the whole book throughout any of these, when you talk about some of these villains or whatever, it, are there any cases where people are actually getting, um, convicted for just flat out lying to the <laughs> consumer or to manipulate, for manipulating data? I mean, does that... Does that ever happen? I, I remember in, uh, I don't know how truthful it is, but I just watched the big short recently and it was yes. something like, I think like two people got 
convicted after after everything was said and done or something like that of, of you know all all of the things that were happening in the financial markets and all of the the clear uh um kind of under basically just very shady behavior that was possibly criminal and like there's only two or three actual convictions in in any of these um throughout your research did you ever come across any of these miscreants that actually were ever held accountable well let's see the um the guy that was marketing uh cocaine if you saw the movie blow Mm -hmm. the character played by johnny depp carl not carl young what his last name is young but uh anyway he was thrown in jail a couple of times yeah um uh, there's a Dutch uh, marketer that we talk about in the alchemy chapter that was selling over um, Silk Road on the internet. He was busted and thrown in jail. Those are illegal products. Okay, if you go to the legal stuff, they aren't going to jail. The worst case, the worst case of this, and for me, when I was doing the research on the book, my favorite find was this incredibly detailed article about Purdue Pharma marketing Oxycontin. And it got down to the detail of what they were training their sales reps to say. Um, uh, it's just, and it's I, what I did is I got permission to include most of the article right in the book because it's such wonderful detail. And the three top executives of that firm were fined millions of dollars, but not one spent a day in jail. And God knows how much uh, misery they have caused through their lying about. Uh, uh, that particular product and its uh, ability to, uh, or it's the problems of addiction associated with it. I so know. that's uh, because it's time release. It's not addictive. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous oh. things, like, which is if you want to build a habit, time release is the best way to build a habit to every two hours precisely. <laughs> like it's it's way worse than than just taking a pill that you might forget to take and might take it irregularly. Yeah. yeah. So so. American executives don't go to jail very often. Right. The interesting thing is the FBI always cuffs them behind the back when they do that because that makes great video. Right, right. You don't need to cuff uh, Bernie Madoff if you're taking him to jail. You just say, hey, Mr. Madoff, please get in the car. Yeah. not going to run away. But they always cuff him uh, for the humiliation factor. Yeah. But they don't uh, – You know, it's so – so seldom uh, fraud, bribery. Bribery is one of the other topics in bribery and international business that I study. And it's not often that people actually spend time in jail, despite the fact that what they do has uh, huge consequences for um, uh, the public. I mean, what do you have any ideas about any of the uh, the solutions for, I, I mean, what, what do you even, it seems... Uh... It just it kind of seems very uh, hopeless sometimes. Hey, what what policies? What what actions do you think? Um, so so people listening, if they were to say um, want to get involved or make better voting choices to uh, support more public health uh, policies, um, what would you kind of like to see happen? Yeah, the key thing. A lot of these things are actually going on. Some. Um, if I look at tobacco as an example, we just in California passed a new tobacco tax. And if you look at the history of tobacco regulation, the th- things that have really made a difference, um, you, you can't control, uh, you can control the quality of the product, but it's uh, 
prohibition doesn't work. So the products are going to be around. You can control the distribution. Um, I used to buy, when I was a kid, I could, uh, you know, 14 or 15, I could go uh, spend 50 cents and get a pack of cigarettes out of a vending machine. I think there were $2 when I started smoking. Yeah. So uh, you can uh, control, and I think the the control of distribution, I'm going down the four Ps right now, those of you who know marketing. The four Um, Ps are product, product, place, uh, price, and promotion. And uh, so it's hard to control the availability or the product, the production of uh, whatever it is. Distribution, you can exercise some control, but the price is easy to control. You just tax it. Mm Mm-hmm. And people don't like taxes, but this is taxes that promote the public health. Mm-hmm. And that's the main tool that's been successful with tobacco is high taxes. So now it's five bucks a pack or in New York City, I think it's 10, more than $10. I report prices of tobacco around the country uh, in the book. But um, taxes have been really useful. And the other is controlling advertising and the information consumers get. Um, here on our campus, uh, Connie Peshman um, is one of the leading advocates. She's a marketing professor, and uh, she studies advertising and uh, its effects on the consumption of cigarettes, both uh, um, anti-smoking advertising but also tobacco advertising. And that's really it's really been important work, supported by all the those lawsuits that got money from the tobacco companies. Uh, the attorneys general around the country uh, promoted, but uh, you really need to control the information that consumers are getting. You know, it has to do with labeling. Labeling is really important. Um, The other thing generally is uh, I think for these hard drugs, I'm, I advocate legalizing them all Mm -hmm. and, and uh, uh, preventing the black market because with the black market, nobody's in control. Uh, but if you control uh, the information that uh, kids get, such as like they do when they're learning to drive a car, mm-hmm. um, in the Netherlands, as an example, they have licensing uh, to get into some of their pot shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to be able to demonstrate that you know what the effect of this drug is going to be on you. And uh, we ought to do that in the school systems, is uh, have kind of a licensing to get into stores where, that sell these different uh, psychoactive substances. Yeah, well, you just gained a lot of favor with a lot of my listeners, but, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> well, uh, but, uh, but that's uh, that's just great. Uh, but, so make sure and get the book spiced, everybody. Yeah. But um, I actually, I mean, this is this is much of my show is, uh, and and the reason why my show is um, actually sponsored by this multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies, which is very professional researchers um, and. Uh, is because I have a very balanced. I'm not. A, I'm not out telling people to go and do every drug that there is. All I'm saying is that on on the street, the difference between a regulated uh, pill of acid, where you know exactly what is in the thing and what dosage it is, and maybe doing it in a clinical uh, setting, um, compared to what's happening now. Where it's at a festival, you don't you don't even know what the acid's made of. This yeah. exceptionally complicated chemical to make, um, like a master's degree in chemistry, you can't just watch YouTube videos, you know. Um, and and then you don't know if, uh, oops, you actually accidentally got ten hits of acid on that sugar cube rather than uh, the ten, which will send you out of your mind, uh, as opposed to one, which would probably barely affect you. 
and uh, and, and this is uh, this is one of the things that scares me the most. And I think that uh, and, and there's organizations like um, like uh, Dance Safe um, uh, that I work with in harm reduction programs where they're going to festivals mm-hmm. um, and going. Okay, people are going to have this stuff, so we'll have drug testing kits so people actually know that. And and mo- the majority of the time, if people test their drugs and it's not what they think it is, they do throw them away. And um, but in most states, these programs are illegal because it's you're admitting that you're having drugs on the premises and and that's yeah. that sort of thing. And I I think it's uh it, it's 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 just not um it's just not reality. You know, it, it's it's like we know that the reason why sex education has changed is because we figured out the abstinence training simply doesn't work. That's not that's not saying everyone should go out and have as yes. much unprotected sex as they possibly can. No, I'm well. Let me state my position on I, all these things that I describe. Mm-hmm. These uh, substances that affect your brain, I think, are bad for human beings. Yeah, and I think we should do everything we can to discourage the consumption of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when it's an effective uh, approach to discouraging it, so taxing is really important. Education is really important. And you have to be honest about the effects. One of my favorite articles, and someone you should interview if you can get over there, is uh, Pro- Professor or Dr. David Nutt. He, in the UK, um, has been real important. Again, this is a fellow I discovered in his body of work I've discovered in doing the research for the book. But uh, he uh, has... I feel like I just saw that name. Yeah, he's been in a big argument with the British government over uh, ecstasy. And, uh, you know, we, I don't want to get into the details of that argument, but he wrote an article called Equacy, mm-hmm. Equacy as an equine or horses. And his point was that riding a horse is much more dangerous than taking ecstasy. Didn't he get fired for saying something like that? He got fired for saying something yes, like that. Yes, yes, yes. He's, uh, he's, I know why I was just talking about him yesterday with, uh, I'm just starting a, a project shooting a documentary about, um, about uh, ethanogens and psychedelics, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Um, and he's going, there's a big conference, a psychedelic science conference coming up in April. That's like the who's who. It's like once every four years or whatever. And yeah. He's going to be there. So he's he's publishing in, in scientific and medical journals like Lancet, which is one of the most important in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he's done the best job of trying to compare across all these different products what are the most dangerous? What are the most addictive? In the book, we include uh, two of his main uh, findings in this area. So, for example, uh, they studied uh, which drug in the UK causes the most harm. Mm. Um, now, um, he did include sugar. So that wasn't on his list, which he should have, and right. that's the answer in the UK. But it's alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and the alcohol is... What's worst about the alcohol is the harm that's done to other people through so drunk driving, wife abuse, family abuse, all this violent stuff. Um, but anyway, he's tried to take a scientific approach to comparing the consequences of consumption of almost all these substances. And so that work is really useful. And I can quote from some of it um, if you want right now. But uh, uh uh, yeah, whatever you want. Okay, Sounds so great. let me let me dig it out. It'll take me a second. Yeah, no, I um, I mean that this 
it's it's uh of, of all the things it's, <laughs> it's al- alcohol is uh an enormous problem and and the funny thing is is so i do a show about psychedelics which I, which i think in any if you saw it you'd be like that is a very reasonable take on things i i imagine I'm, that's what every scientist well, you, i imagine you have uh, a vivid imagination <laughs> yeah i do okay. but um but <laughs> i do have a vivid you're correct um so maybe i'm being presumptuous but um but i still like give disclaimers and whatnot during during the show if i were to give a disclaimer about the harmful effects of alcohol at a comedy club i would be fired (laughs) (laughs) like i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to tour i wouldn't be able able to go around i mean that's my job is to uh entertain you so they can sell you drinks yeah. that's what i'm there for <laughs> yeah yeah well my miscreant in the alcohol chapter is john stewart really yes wait till you get to that one. Oh, what what what's that about well so i i'm a was a huge fan of john stewart yeah. trevor Noah is very good now too i, have I, haven't, to say. I haven't seen much trevor well, he's getting he's been improving yeah and there's a hard shoes to fill of course but um you know, John had reoccurring themes in his advertisements. Mm. Uh, one of them was uh, pancake, sausage on a stick, Jimmy Dean. It mm. was hilarious stuff. But he had a lot of alcohol advertising. And the, for me, the most objectionable product advertised was um, marshmallow fluff flavored vodka. And the purpose of that product is to get your date drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your female date drunk. Right. And so John is is advertising products like that. At the same time, he's uh, doing shows on date rape. Right. And so I just the inconsistency is too great. And I, John yeah, Oliver yeah, yeah. said one time, "I'm so happy I don't have to worry about advertisers." Because yeah. Oliver can say anything he wants. But I have I, zero advertisers on this show. For okay, for, well, you do have a sponsor well, though. But anyway, <laughs> no, I don't have a sponsor. No. Okay, well, nobody's nobody's no, um, no one's influencing me. No, and I'm not sure who's influencing me, but um, <laughs> it's big T. A, a, anyway, the uh, so I you know I kind of understand all this, but yeah. anyway, he was my he was the miscreant there, even though I love him. Um, I thought he was behaving badly, and yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's the story. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess that's uh, that's a, that's another one of the frustrating things. So I, I look at it from you know politician point of view, uh, which is um, so say so say you get into a public services because you just want to do good and you want to help people. Well, you still need to get elected. You still need X amount of funds to get elected. Yeah, and uh, just the temptation, and unless they change something and have some sort of cap on uh election funds or so it, I, I it, it seems like it's hard to get a, it seems like we have a very very long ways to go uh to get to make any headway on any of this i ha- i have to compliment donald trump about something it, really yes wow this he is this is about the edgiest thing that... he spent hardly any money yeah yeah that is interesting that that is really different mm-hmm. really different i mean i don't i i can't imagine a, a worse president Me fact, it's beyond imagination but he yeah. did change still dealing with it the campaigns yeah so yeah. that that was uh uh kind of interesting 
Yeah, it's it's like a it's a it's a different model now. Rather than campaigning, you just have to like uh, uh, be outrageous or whatever. Like, uh, maybe Johnny Knoxville will be our next president. Or, oh. Or, or uh, maybe or, you could run for president. Kim Kardashian, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, Kim Kardashian or something. Oh, um, so I know. Well, this is the new world we're living in. The celebrity thing is really it, is really disturbing. It is. It's true. Um, so I I do. Oh, oh, sorry. You had some. Quotes we didn't for me. talk about sugar much. I, no, this is what I wanted to bring up. Oh, right now. perfect. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This I think I think sugar is. Uh, is kind of the main one. It's it's one that I actually just since I started reading this, and it's it's something uh, I've been trying to make a few improvements in in my life lately, and uh, and it's been a little bit on my mind. But it's it's one of the sugar is one of the ones that I keep on putting off. I, yeah. I still I stop and get gas, and I I get some candy, and I I know half of the garbage that I eat, and when I stop and get fast food and what. Fortunately, I don't drink much soda. That's that's excellent. I I pretty much only drink soda if I'm dead tired and I have one of these podcasts that I have to do and my brain just isn't working. Um, I'll I'll slam a soda quick uh, to get my brain to work for an hour and then I'll crash and like not feel great afterwards. But my brain will at least work for. <laughs> Or an hour. That, that's the problem with a lot of these things is people think they're like waking them up for. But if you're, it might wake you up to get you to work. But if you're working for eight to ten hours, like that's not. It's not going to make you more productive overall. Yeah, the funny thing. One of the funny things about sugar is Dr. Pepper was used to wake workers up. Mm-hmm. So the ten to four thing. The idea was you give it to your employees at ten, two, and four, mm-hmm. and they'll be more productive. That was a myth from I don't know. 80 years ago or something. But, uh, you know, if you look at um, how addictive things are, so, uh, and this is from the U.S. Institute of Medicine, and uh, at the top of the list is yours, tobacco. Mm-hmm. If you, uh, 32% of people that smoke a cigarette become addicted to it, mm-hmm. okay? Next on the list is heroin. 23% of people that try heroin become addicted. Um, cocaine, seventeen percent become uh, Can addicted. I stop you just for one second? Absolutely. When, when you say heroin, what about what? Um, are there? Uh, do you happen to have any idea? Because you mentioned oxy. I yeah. mean, I mean, the difference between heroin and oxy is like it's. Well, it, heroin, it's, heroin is uh, more powerful. In fact, one of the crazy things in the in the laws is the special place that heroin holds because morphine. I, um, I was going to ask you, but you don't need to answer. Have you ever uh, been in the ER yeah, yeah. with uh, drug, with drugs? Oh yeah, people uh, people know. Oh, you mean from, I'm like, asking an you personally? You don't yeah. have to answer that. No, no, I have been. Yeah, every, everyone. I broke my feet. Uh, like everyone that listens to this show knows, knows about this. Okay. Uh, so okay. so yeah, I had morphine. I was on crutches for a year. I was on pain pills for a year. Actually, when I uh, to get off of pain pills, I I started. I didn't have to, but I started. Uh, drinking again rather to to relieve the pain and then that's when i started smoking again oh yeah i'm I'm just trying to you know but it was better than being addicted to pills yes so i I had a kidney stone and i went to the er and they gave me morphine and i you know i didn't get high i just the kidney stone hurt less Mm -hmm. so i've i've that's my experience with morphine i got high but you got high i i missed that 
Um, but my point is the special place of heroin. So you've got morphine, which is not as powerful as heroin. Heroin is the same drug, actually. It's a little bit more refined. Right. Um, they're both uh, um, opiates, mm-hmm. so they come from opium. But then you have fentanyl. And I don't know if you've talked about fentanyl it's, on the it's show. Like Thirty times more powerful than heroin, or something. Well, it's what killed Prince. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's famous. He he made it famous. It's used usually in hospice as a sucker, so you can't get too much at a time. But it, but it's much more powerful than heroin. So why does heroin have this special place where it's a Schedule One drug, mm-hmm. and we throw people in jail like crazy for? Uh, why don't we just make that a pharmaceutical like? The morphine below it and the fentanyl above it. Right. And then we have some sense. And some countries do that. In some countries, heroin is legal. But Well, uh, heroin has the name and the stigma attached to it, and that's, and that's all that it is. Well, and that's one of the key things in the book um, that I try to address is this history, this folklore about all these drugs. There's a lot of racism, for example, in right. cocaine policy, mm-hmm. um, in marijuana policy. And so – all that culture that uh, when as soon as you say the word heroin, people all that comes uh, to people, and really they're just a bunch of chemicals. Uh, in the first chapter, I actually list the chemical formulas of all these things, and they're mostly carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, with once in a while a little uh, chlorine. But uh, um, there's all this lore associated with them that. Uh, gets in the way of of doing uh, uh, regu- regulation that works, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the points. But anyway, I'm, so I'm, yeah, go. Sorry to interrupt. Okay, go so I, I'm. Uh, we were talking. I was just talking about the, uh, the most addictive. different addictive, the most addictive things. Sugar's never on a list, and we started about talking about sugar. Yeah, sugar is the most addictive thing. Yeah, why? Well, I, I don't nobody, understand that. Nobody thinks of sugar. As a psychoactive substance, well, f- very few people, and so it's Nut doesn't have it on his list. If you look at the back of the book, that's one of the things Nut said about the book is it has a more comprehensive set of psychoactive substances, mm-hmm. and and uh, David very nicely wrote a nice thing about the book. But uh, I didn't know him before, but I ran into all this work he had done on the, the different uh, addictive qualities, and he just never thought to study sugar. Mm-hmm. But uh, sugar's the worst, um, and sugar, we're learning now, is a slow poison. Uh, and so you consume it, and it slowly kills you, heading toward diabetes particularly, which is an awful disease. I mean, if you know, people complain about waterboarding as a kind of torture. If you really want to talk about torture, talk to a diabetic who's lost his feet mm-hmm. and uh, lost his sight. And uh, that's real torture, and the consumption of sugar does that. My girlfriend's a social worker. I have to hear these stories every day. Well, I, I've, my, my daughter works in hospice, and uh, you know it's it's the same thing. Let's go to Cuba. This is this is one of the most interesting parts about the sugar story. Sure. Of course, Cuba is famous for its sugar, and uh, the thing about Cuba, if you look in the book about. Um, the different consumptions. I mean, it has us as the champion sugar consumers. We actually aren't because, uh, yes, we bring a lot of sugar into the house, but a lot of it goes down the garbage disposal in the trash can. So uh, the the metric um, that your monitor uses for sugar consumption is grams per day. So Americans are at about 126 grams per day. Cubans are at 119. That's almost the same. Mm. Now, the Cubans have a really good health care system. Um, 
they spend $400 uh, per person per year, and we spend $8,000 per person per year, and they get the same longevity, virtually the same longevity. They also have a diabetes problem, but the weird thing is the Cuban government um, gives every Cuban citizen, so family of four, you get four uh, rations of sugar. They give them 96 pounds of sugar per year, and the Cubans do not waste food. Um, they use it all. So we're consuming, on average, about 70 pounds a year. The Cubans are really up there, and they have a diabetes problem in Cuba. But it's interesting that they have a good healthcare system, but they're really doing damage to the healthcare of their people by giving them all this sugar. But they're in one of the greatest sugar producing producing uh, countries of the world. So you know all this politics, even in a communist country, the government is doing something stupid mm-hmm. uh, and is hurting uh, the health of the people. But uh, I don't know. We could talk a lot about sugar and slavery and how. Uh, the reason we have uh, slavery in the new world is a lot about sugar, but I, get, I think we're running about out, out of time here. I mean, I, I don't have to, if, if you want to wrap up just by finishing, like if, if you, I'll sit here and talk as long as you want. And as long as me, your listeners, listeners yeah, will listen, you know, the number one, so I don't, I don't ever ask for my guests for more than an hour of time, but the number one thing that I, my listeners say is I, I wish, uh, I wish the episodes were longer. They always want to hear more. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I would, well, I would love to hear more. I got now, nowhere to be. Now yeah, the pro- I'll, let, I'll let you call it. Yeah. So the problem sitting across for me is I'm used to teaching three hours at a time. No problem. Uh, <laughs> I have an appointment uh, in another half an hour, so I can only go for about thirty more minutes. Let's uh, let's let's do uh, let's do ten or fifteen more minutes, just so I can because I'm going to have to pack up all my stuff too. Sure, that's fine. You can pack up while anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just stop me anytime you want. Um, sugar. So. So you read the chapter on salt and sugar mm-hmm. and caffeine. I told you my favorite story there. Um, I'm just trying to think of some of the fun stories. I, I tried to bring fun. You know, oh, caffeine. My favorite myth um, in the book. And the mythology, again, is an important consideration. Mm-hmm. So where does tea come from? Or where does caffeine come from? And uh, there's a... The fellow that uh, the the myth is that uh, the person that brought Buddhism to China, a fellow by the name of I'm not going to say this right, but uh, Bodhidharma, in the in the 1500s. I'm just going to assume you nailed it. Yeah, I I don't think I did. Um, but anyway, uh, the myth is that uh, the uh, tea comes from the fact that he was sitting in front of a wall meditating. And while he was meditating in front of this wall, he fell asleep for nine years. And when he woke up, he was so angry with himself for wasting all this time that he got a pair of scissors and cut off his eyelids. And the eyelids dropped to the ground, and the first tea bush grew from his eyelids. Yeah, it makes I mean, it's as reasonable as any other take that I've yes. heard. <laughs> so part of my point is, and I have another story about the USS Constitution, the ship, and alcohol consumption on that ship, yeah. that is also a myth. So there's a lot of myth, start to myth information, misinformation uh, <laughs> around on all these topics. So what I've tried to do in the book is, and what's kind of weird about it for you potential readers, is I put the citations, that, footnotes at the bottom of the page, and that annoys a lot of people. 
But I'm actually happy I did that now because of all this business about alternative truth and, you know, what's your reference? I make it very easy. Just look to the bottom of the page. That's not unusual. Most of the books that I read have. Well, the scientific books do that frequently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So our textbook does that, but the books I write for managers don't do that. Ah, I see. You know. Um, well, well, let's go through a little bit of the history. So early on in our, our hunter gatherer past the, the sugar that we needed to kind of survive and run our bodies was, we were mostly getting from plants and, and well, the salt, and you're talking about salt, sugar. No, you don't need sugar. You don't need sugar no. at all. You could cut sugar out of your diet and you'd be much more healthy. And if you go back to the original hunter gatherers, this is again, one of my favorite topics. When I talk about consumer behavior in my classes, we all evolved from um, basically the San people, the African Bushmen. Mm-hmm. You need you need sugar in your system, but you don't need refined sugar. I, yeah, I yeah, refined. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that's what I was. Okay, okay, but you could get you can get sugar into your system by eating a potato, right? Because the body breaks down the carbohydrate into into glucose. Whew, okay, that's what I mean. That's what I was saying. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, no, you're good. I missed that. All right, but if you go back to so human beings have been on the planet 200,000 years. I know you know this. Mm-hmm. And for 190,000 years, we were hunter-gatherers. Yeah. And where do we find hunter-gatherers now? Well, there's a place in New Guinea, but the main place is in the Kalahari Desert. So uh, if anybody's more interested in this topic, you can uh, rent The Gods Must Be Crazy. Have you seen that movie? Uh, no, I it, well not not since I was like it's been like twenty years. It was made nineteen eighty. Yeah, yeah. But it has a very accurate depiction of the San people or the Kalahari Bushmen is a, kind of a more pejorative name, um, but it's very accurate. Uh, and I've looked at other documentaries on them, and so it's actually pretty good. It's not a documentary; it's a comedy. Right. Yeah. But uh, anyway, they didn't have sugar. They never find sugar. They did get sugar from maybe honey or maybe berries once in a while. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Han pe- the uh, San people inform a lot about how humans are evolved to work. So I mentioned I have a book on multi-generational living. Well, basically, what you see there is a group of about a big extended family, 20 or 30 people. And that's the way humans were designed to live and interact. And so we're coming back to multi-generational living right now because nuclear families, which is a marketing creation, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, is becoming less useful. So, for example, this is a little bit aside from the Spice book. But, Love it. But, uh, for example, now the companies are realizing that the target shouldn't be the nuclear family. It should be the extended family. Mm. So I've got two of my kids on our, and my wife on our AT&T uh, cell phone plan. I try to change, and my sense is, don't do that. You know, we've got a great data system. But uh, so they've hooked the extended family. Now, my bank uh, does exactly the same thing. Citibank, not Citibank, Chase Bank uh, offers my kids uh, special accounts because they're in the family. Mm-hmm. The oldest uh, a company, the, the earliest example I can think of this is USAA Insurance. And they say, if you're... Uh, the son, or if you're in the fa- if you're in the family with a former uh, military member, then you can buy USAA insurance. So they're targeting the extended family, and we're you know, uh, boomerang kids is a version of this. But the main reason it's happening is old guys like me. We're breaking the system. Baby boomers are breaking the system, and uh, people like you can't afford my retirement. 
and the, the healthcare system and the pension systems are breaking. And one of the main solutions is not going to be the government. It's going to be multi-generational families. So I tell my kids, I'm going to move in with one of you when I get really decrepit. And they say, <laughs> okay, dad, if you're going to do that, what are you going to do for us now? <laughs> so this is all goes back to the San people. We were involved, we evolved from the African savannas in hunter gatherer groups of about 20 to 30. And, and, uh, we're getting back to that. Mm. We had this 50 year experiment with, uh, uh, nuclear families, which has failed. Mm. Anyway, that's an aside. That's a whole nother topic. No, that's so interesting. I'll, I'll rates, have you on again sometime to talk about, uh, some of your other books. Okay. Well, that, that relates to what you were talking about those the evolutionary biology. Yeah. The other thing it relates to is how people negotiate. So Donald Trump's book, I, do you know the name of Donald, Donald Trump's book on negotiation? The Art of the Deal? The Art of the Deal. <laughs> so uh, my most recent book is called... Great a, Negotiator, the best. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> he's an awful negotiator. That's why he gets sued so often and why he sues people often. You and, mean someone that speaks in absolutes yes. isn't a great negotiator? So I'm doing a plug for a book, but that's not really it. It goes back to the San people. Right. So we as humans evolved working with people we know for life mm -hmm. or the adjacent group. And this relates to Dunbar's number. I don't know if you've talked about your on your show, Dunbar's number. Well, we have, but it's been a while. What, uh, 150, is it? It's uh, about 130 to 150. But if you think of the hunter-gatherer group of 20 to 30... We, be we better explain just to... So so the Dunbar number is is basically the the number of, of close <coughs> interactions that we've evolved to be able to handle, like the, the amount of... <coughs> excuse me. Bless you. The amount of... Uh, uh, some coffee grounds in my throat. Um yeah. But basically, the number of people that you can kind of know fairly well and retain a memory of um, yeah. that our brains have, have uh, evolved to retain, right? Yeah, so it's about 150. So if you think of this hunter-gatherer group in, uh, in South Africa uh, 100,000 years ago, 20 to 30 people, and next door to them is another hunter-gatherer group of about 20 to 30, and 20 to 30 groups around them there's about 150 people mm -hmm. so humans are designed in our nonverbal and verbal communication to interact with people we know really well and the hunter-gatherer group are 20 to 30 we live with them but we also run into these other people periodically and um so basically negotiation how we negotiate that behavior and that process comes from that it's mostly sitting around a campfire and the group discusses something. And long-term interpersonal relationships are a key aspect of that. Trump's approach, you know. He, I think not, you got to neg people a little bit. You give them a hard time until they, uh, until they bend, and then they like you and they want your approval. I think that's the art of the deal. Yeah, and, and that doesn't work. <laughs> so he's, he's emphasizing the deal or the transaction, right. and we emphasize the relationship. Right, right. And in most countries in the world, people are interested in relationships. Mm -hmm. So anyway, now we're getting... I guess maybe I'm doing a good job of marketing books. I love it. But uh, all but this, this relates. Is, I, I only had you on here to promote the art of the deal, actually. That's what, uh, that's what this okay. is. I just want to encourage all my listeners. To... So the name of our <laughs> book is Inventive Negotiation. Right. But anyway, um, uh, it all relates back to human evolution, how the brain works. Mm -hmm. The brain can handle 150 people, relationships. 
Um, the brain uh, is affected by all these new things that have come into the diet. Uh, sugar, refined sugar is one. It's, it's had a horrible effect. Yeah. Uh, tobacco has had a horrible effect. Um, all these things are having bad effects. Can we um, close up by just finishing talking about um, the kind of just the, the, uh, the, the story of sugar, how, how it got from not having refined sugar to where we are today and, as you mentioned, slavery? Yeah, um, I guess sugar, sugar cane uh, was first grown, I think, in India and uh, Indonesia, if I'm remembering right. It's in the book. As I mentioned, my memory is imperfect. <laughs> I I just read it and I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so sugar didn't make it to Europe uh, for a long time until basically uh, the Europeans started exploring for spices. So the Dutch yeah. went east, and uh, the the Spaniards went west, uh, all looking for spices. And that that whole story about all the different spices is uh, is is really interesting. And that's in the book, things like nutmeg and chocolate and, you know, why did the Spaniards come to the new world? I had to teach, uh, when my son was in the fourth grade, I had to, uh, I was asked to talk about, uh, the exploration and, uh, of the new world and in particular California. And the way I did that is I gave people, I gave the students a small silver dollar pancake, which tastes like crap without syrup on it. And I said, I said, here is the reason why the Spaniards came to the New World, and I gave them a chocolate chip cookie. So that had sugar, it had vanilla, and it had chocolate in it. Mm -hmm. And that's what really drove the exploration. But, Did uh, any of the kids like the pancake more? No. <laughs> Was there like one weirdo? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. But you know, the point is it's the same thing, except now you've got these new – so the Europeans uh, uh, ran into sugar and – got hooked on it uh, in the 1500s, 1600s. Mm -hmm. And uh, that created, in, in order to produce sugar, you need a, a tropical climate. And so that caused slavery. Uh, and I don't know, about 2 million people died during the uh, slavery um, disaster. Well, that was interesting. This wasn't in your book, but, uh, but, but there was, did you see some of the stuff about how uh, originally... Um, uh, there, there was a period of time where sugar was like the sinful, uh, yes, <laughs> the sinful thing. I think it was around Europe, right, where yeah. it was uh, kind of demonized and and um, it, it it was it was. I mean, the way that I read about it, it was as if you were talking about heroin or crack today or something like that. You know, <laughs> where, where that's right. <laughs> it was like if you someone that goes to church doesn't doesn't go eating sugar, you yeah. know, that sort of thing. Um, so, so anyhow, and then, it, so then it went from that to becoming such a popular thing that, that then, uh, we justified slavery to get our hands on, on more of this stuff. That's right. And, and now it's killing us. There's so much of it in our diet. For me, uh, if you look at the numbers of sugar consumption, I mentioned that Cuba was on the top, but the mm -hmm. U S is, so people come from other countries and they go, God, everything is so sweet in this country, uh, cause they don't have that much sugar in their, in their diet or they don't have that much put into their food. So my main, um, you asked about, you know, what is the solution? My main uh, advice um, to people in regulation is you ought to charge, you, sugar taxes work, we know that, because from two years in Mexico, we can see the consumption of sodas going down with the soda tax. But the more important thing to do is to tax the users of sugar who put it into the foods, so that's restaurants and food processors. 
rather than say taxing the bag of sugar that you get at a grocery store you're talking about that's right that's right. not important right, right but there's so much sugar in our diet because the food processors and the restaurants put it there right um and so the best way to attack it the consumption of sugar is to tax the people who use it. They'll pass along the price, but they're profit motivated, so they want to reduce their costs, so they'll reduce sugar content. But it has to be a really high tax. The sugar's pretty cheap, so I was advising a five hundred percent tax on sugar. And this is, I mean, this this is this is a cost for uh, for people that are making lots and lots of money. This isn't. I mean, some of it some of it gets passed on to the. To the consumer, because I'm sure. I mean, I think a big argument would be like, "What if groceries go up in price, or or whatever?" Yes, but um, but the the bulk of the cost of this is is these major corporations and Nestle and Pepsi and that sort of thing that that are are just going to have to figure out ways of eliminating it. Well, the single best thing you can do to improve the public health of Americans is tax the hell out of sugar, mm-hmm. and and that'll make a big difference. And we're just starting to realize that. And you have to, you know, it takes a marketing perspective uh, to think through these things. Um, And a lot of these boards that are making decisions about regulations, we don't often have marketing people that are interested in reducing the consumption. We have marketing people that are interested in maintaining consumption levels. But uh, it's different. And this uh, group of marketing academics... um, and and how we found each other, we were we were uh, introduced by uh, Ka- Kathleen Voss. Mm-hmm. Um, she's involved in this transformative consumer research group. There are about four hundred people in the organization, and their interest is public health, not the efficiency and profits of companies. Most people in marketing are interested in, in the efficiency and profitability of companies. Is this the nonprofit that you're? No. Oh, okay. Okay. Go on. That's that'd be a good one too. Yeah. 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 But uh, um, so we are beginning to face up to some of these issues, and your show is really going to help letting people know. I wrote the book to basically stir the pot on talking about this, and uh, um, well, I'm happy you did. I mean, a lot a lot of these things on the show, we we. I mean, I, I try to keep things grounded in things that can help people's like everyday life a little bit, but but sometimes we have episodes that are like, here's some cool info about how the visual system works, or but but this is something that is exceptionally important that is really affecting everyone's life, and and you know, I, I just want to end, I yeah. guess, with one quick story about cocaine, sure, because this will make everyone in your audience wince. The story I'm about to tell. So if you look at the history of cocaine, which uh, comes also from South America and the Spaniards uh, finding it and, and, the, um, and uh, the native peoples chewing it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when cocaine made it to Germany, Sigmund Freud was one of the key people to be an advocate of the use of the drug, which is kind of interesting. But one of his colleagues did the, the, the best um, – demonstration of how it can be used as a painkiller. His name was uh, Carl Collar, and at a medical convention um, in Freud's time, um, he got up in front of an audience of 300 medical people, and he said, I'm going to demonstrate how great cocaine is as a local anesthetic. And so he put a little cocaine in his eye, and then in front of the crowd, he stuck a needle in his eye. 
that is that'll get attention. Yes, and so I think that caused probably the greatest mass wince in history. Uh, watching that happen, I don't know how di- good a job I did of relating the story, but how, how many of you winced out there? But anyway, there's all kinds of interesting stories like this related to all these different uh, psychoactive substances. Well, everyone, please. Uh, I mean, we we just scratched the surface today, so so um, I know you guys will love the book Spiced uh, by John L. Graham. So check it out, John. What is so I have um, my guest? Like I said, I don't have a. I have no sponsors. I refuse to have sponsors. Actually, uh, instead, I have uh, my guests plug a nonprofit of their choice uh, each week. So. What, what would yours? Uh, yeah, mine would be um, what I'm doing in my retirement at the business school is uh, working with an organization called the Center for Global Leadership. And uh, what we're trying to do is uh, get our students to other countries. Um, uh, we think it's important to open up their eyes to uh, this global view of things. You know, one of the big problems that we identify in Spiced is Americans tend to think that Am- Americans know everything. And we don't. So the Dutch have a much better approach to handling a lot of these psychoactive substances than, than we do. And you can see it in their reduced consumption levels. Mm. Um, so anyway, I'm not saying we're going to send all our students to the Netherlands, although I've taken students to the Netherlands. But the point is we're trying to get our students overseas to see how things work around the rest of the world. And so um, the charity is, and it's the University of California, the Mirage School of Business, the Center for Global Leadership. And uh, if you want to contribute, you're going to help a student get overseas to see how things are done in other countries. Future uh, future leaders and researchers and influencers in the world, you can help educate them and, and uh, help them have uh, experiences so they can bring those ideas back here and, uh, and help us. That's right. Um, well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me, John. Okay, well, thanks so much uh, for asking, Shane. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Absolutely. John L. Graham, everybody, thank you, listeners, for being such a wonderful, curious, smart people. We will talk again next week. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God.
Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 